We're going to be back in chapter 9, and many of you will recall that, that when we left off here, uh, that Jesus was very near the end of his Galilean ministry. Uh, you know, he and his disciples, they had been ministering to great crowds, crowds that had gathered in response to, to his healings, but also uh, to his teachings. Uh, and as they had done so, the, the hopes and the questions about who Jesus might be, uh, they seemed to flourish. You know, obviously there were those who accepted what Jesus said, who seemed to submit to him, uh, men like the disciples themselves. We saw many of their stories. Uh, we saw the women and the leper, the sinners uh, who have been transformed uh, and who have committed their lives to following Christ. Uh, others ha have heard uh, and they have been left like Herod here in this same chapter back in verse 9. Uh, with a lot of questions. They, they were unsure of who Jesus might be. You remember he asked there, who is this? Now his context might not have been necessarily a good one, uh, but he wondered, who is this man that, that he keeps, keeps hearing about? Uh, many are on the fence about Jesus. And then still there are others, uh, particularly the, the Jewish religious elite, uh, who have completely rejected him, right? That they have looked from the beginning of a way that they might discredit or might discourage or might even get rid of this man who they see as a self-proclaimed Messiah, this, this man, Jesus, who has done so much to, to hinder their own ministry, so much to kind of annoy them. And so it's with all of this kind of swirling in the background that Luke has built us up to this moment here in chapter 9. Because here we, we kind of come to the climax of the book up until this point. If, if Luke's desire has been to share with us the truth of things concerning Jesus, of who he is, and that's what he said at the beginning of the book, right? Then today he's finally going to, to sort of make that clear. He's going to give us an answer to the question of who is Jesus of Nazareth. And as always, the answer is far more than anybody really could have anticipated. It's far more than they had in their minds. And so let's read together here from Luke chapter 9. We're going to read 10 through 22 this morning. It says, on their return, the apostles, they told him all that they had done. And he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed him, and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now the day, day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowds away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, You give them something to eat. They said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we are to go and buy food for all these people. For there were about 5,000 men, and he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so, and had them sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up, twelve baskets of broken pieces. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, Who do the crowd say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say Elijah, and others that the one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? 
And Peter answered, The Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, it stands forever. Let's pray together. Father, as we come now to this portion of your word, Lord, we pray for clarity. Uh, Lord, we pray as the choir has sung that we might turn our eyes upon Jesus here in this uh, most critical uh, of passages that ask the question we must all face at some point. Who is this Jesus? Lord, may we walk away with clarity. May we walk away with wisdom. May we walk away looking by faith to this one who is the Savior of the world. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. The Eureka Effect. Well, many of you, uh, you might be unfamiliar with that term, uh, but it is the phrase used by scientists to describe that moment, that that kind of aha moment, uh, when maybe uh, some lines of thought, maybe something that was previously incomprehensible to you, finally all comes together. You know, if you like cartoons like I do, it's that moment when the little light bulb comes on over their heads, you know? Um, It's the moment when in a kind of clarity hits you and everything seems clear. Now, if you are a teacher or a parent or a coach, you know exactly what this moment is like and you know exactly how thrilling of a moment it can be. You know, maybe it's a difficult concept in science or in math, and you've really been trying to teach the student or your child, been really trying to teach them this thing very hard. And you've gone through all the different possibilities, and it seems that it's right there, obvious on the page. And finally, one day, it it all comes together. All of the, the study, everything that they've looked at, it finally clicks you know that moment. You can see the, the joy kind of wash over them, right? When they finally all, when they put it all the different strands together, all the struggle, all the effort, it finally pays off. And they get what was right there all along. And as a parent or a teacher, you want to rejoice with them, right? You want to say Eureka right alongside them. You know, Sam's baseball team over the last few weeks it seems that they've kind of had that moment. All of our hard work, all of our practices, all of the long speeches, and they get really long. You, y'all think y'all have it bad. The speeches get long. All of those things seem to finally have, have kind of hit. They, they've made an effect. You can see it in the way that they've played. And it's been amazing. It's been thrilling for them. It's been thrilling for us as coaches as well. Well, in this passage before us, I think what we see is one of those eureka moments, one of those aha moments. These disciples, though they have committed themselves to Jesus, and though they have experienced all of these things as they've walked along with him, they've seen his miracles, they've seen him teach, they've heard what he's had to say, but through all of that, it seems that maybe they still have not put all the different strands together. They know he is, he is something great But up until this point, it doesn't seem like they've really nailed it down. Everything, all of these different opinions that are floating around, that they are kind of filtering through their minds uh, minds too. But, But here, they seem to finally come to the conclusion of who exactly Jesus is. You know, after one last great miracle, after a direct and poignant question, 
And after what is a surprising revelation, Peter gives the answer that we all know is true and that we've all been looking for all along. The light bulb, it finally comes on. What I want us to consider today, that the question for us as we move along through this, as we follow along this aha moment, is have we had that ourselves? Have we, like Peter, been able to confess the truth of who Jesus is? And so that, that's, that's where we're headed. That's what we want to look at. So let's do that together. The first thing I want you to see in this passage is an impossible dinner. An impossible dinner. Now, when we left off, Jesus had sent his disciples out into the world. Uh, he had sent them kind of on their first solo flight. I understand that, that if you're training to be a pilot, you know, you have to have so many hours as like behind a simulator. You have to have so many hours with a, a, your instructor with you in the plane. And then you have to have so many hours of kind of solo flight. Well, Jesus ha- has done that here for the disciples as well. You know, they've been together, he has trained them in person, but then he sent them out into the world to kind of get some hands-on self-loan training, right? And here they've come back, they've come back to report, and they've come back to, to kind of relax. You know, we read there in verse 10 that when they get there, Jesus takes them off into a desolate place so that they can report, so that they can kind of recoup after this uh, adventure, we'll say, that, that they've had out in the world. Now, it's sort of like a retreat with the Savior, right? You can kind of see the, the T-shirts being printed. You can see everything there. They've, they've gone out with Jesus. Uh, and it's certainly something that you can imagine they needed. But uh, as was so often the case, the crowds had other plans, right? Look at verse 11, the first half of verse 11 there. It says, when the crowds learned it, they followed him. Now, if we're honest, there's something about this that, that would have been burdensome, right? Uh, there's something about this, frankly, that would have been annoying if, if you were the disciples. Here you are, you've been trying to get away, you've been trying to rest, you're trying to get some quality time together and with Jesus, and these people who have demanded so much from you, who are always wanting something else, a miracle or a sign or some kind of teaching, those people, they just continually keep showing up, and here they are again, interrupting this moment of peace that you have come from. Now, now I bet we don't have to think too hard to imagine how all of us would have reacted to that, right? You know, imagine that you have, have come home from a hard day's work, and the kids are wanting you to do this, or your spouse is wanting you to do that, and you just want to sit in the, on the couch, right? You just want to sit in the recliner. But you have all of these things to do. People keep interrupting you. You can imagine that, that, that the disciples, and especially Jesus, who never seems to get a moment's peace, would feel that way here. But notice what he does. And there in the second half of verse 11, it says, They followed him out, and he welcomed them. And he spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who needed or in need of healing. What did he do? He welcomed them. Though he was tired, though he was ready for a reprieve, he ministered to them in word and in deed. He was unwilling to neglect the call that the Father had given him to care for these people, to care for them physically, but more importantly, to care for them spiritually. 
Friends, what a wonderful, wonderful reminder that is to all of us who are weary and tired today. Those of us who seem to continually go to Jesus and unload all of our burdens to him over and over and over again. Doesn't it seem that at some point he would say, all right, that's enough. I'm tired of hearing it. You have given me your problems, the same ones, every day for the last six months. I'm tired of hearing it. Is that what he says to us? No. We can be sure that that if he, in his human flesh, had time for these people who, who had all of these needs, then we can be sure now that as he has ascended to God's right hand, as he intercedes for us always, that he always has time. For you and I today, no matter how burdensome we may be, no matter how annoying we may be, and certainly we have far more in in common with this crowd than we do with the disciples, then surely, surely he has time for us. He's never too busy. He's never out. He's never unavailable. He's always there to do what he does for this crowd, to minister to us in word and in deed. Even, even when we don't think we need him, even when we don't go to him, he is there ministering to his people. Friends, this is a great, great reminder. And to their credit, the disciples, they seem to follow their master here, right? Uh, they seem to fall in line that they go ahead and minister to the crowd as well. But in verse 12, I think you can kind of begin to see a little bit of the cracks starting to show, right? Notice how when they speak to Jesus, they do it almost in a command. It says, now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, send the crowds away to go into the surrounding villages and to the countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. Now look, I think this is a genuine concern for the people on their part, but you can kind of hear the the annoyance in their voice, right? You can kind of hear them say, all right, finally, we have done enough. We have come to this desolate place to find a reprieve for ourselves. So Jesus, please send these people away. Go send them into town to find the things that they need. You know, if nothing else, it seems that they have forgotten who they are with. It seems they have forgotten what Jesus came to do. And it seems they have forgotten the, the power that he has within him. A power that has worked through them up until this point. But a power now that they seem to kind of have put to the side. And so Jesus, he works to remind them of who they are. But more importantly, he works to remind them of who he is. And so notice there in verse 13, Uh, He gives them this kind of great test. He says, you give them something to eat. Now that you in the Greek is very emphatic. Jesus is looking to his disciples and he's saying, you go do this. You give these 5,000 men something to eat. It's almost as if he's saying to them, do you not remember your call? Do you not remember all of the exploits you have just recounted to me of when you were out on your own and all of the things that you did? And more importantly, do you not remember the power that is yours by faith? A power that in Matthew 17 we read, if it was the size of a mustard seed, could move mountains, right? He says, do you not remember the, the faith that you have, the faith that is yours and the power that comes with it? You 
through me, go feed these people. You, through me, do what you think here is impossible. But notice their response. They say, Jesus, there are 5,000 men here. All we have are these five loaves and these two fish and no money. You know, you might, it might be a good thing that you're asking us to do, but you might as well be asking us to move mountains. There's no way that we can do this. Now, again, though they are right to see their inadequacy, though they are unable to, to put all of these things together, uh, their, their faith is weak. Their memories are short. I wonder today, does that, that sound familiar to us? You know, Christ, he calls us as his people to do a lot of difficult things. He calls us to, to care for those who are close to us, care for loved ones, even when they are not very lovable. He calls us to, to witness to the world, even to our enemies, even to people that we don't like to love and to care for them. He calls us to, to stick out those difficult marriages because he has joined us together. He calls us to, to walk away from those addictions that we have because he wants what is best in our life. He wants he, him and his uh, teachings to be the most important thing to us. And yet we struggle, right? Often, often we say, Lord, these things are good, but, but you might as well be calling us to move mountains because these things you ask are impossible. Notice, notice here how Jesus proves the point, and he proves it emphatically. He has the disciples sit the the people down in groups. Then he takes the the food, as meager as it may be, and he blesses it, and he begins to distribute it to to all of these 5,000 people who, who are gathered. And what once would have been only enough for, for maybe four or five, it suddenly becomes an excess for 5,000. Notice in verses 16 and 17, it says, In taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples and set them before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up, 12 baskets full. Here, the creator, the sustainer of all things, he takes what in human terms is inadequate. and He creates again to care for and to sustain his people, not only to sustain them, but to satisfy them completely, even more than they need, not just meet their need, but he gives them even more, 12 basketfuls even more. The power that the disciples had forgotten, the power that they needed to do the miracle that they that God Jesus had called them to do. But more importantly than that, the power that they needed to work in them is here on full display. And friends, that's really the point of this miracle, right? Certainly, Jesus is teaching us here that he cares for our physical needs. Just as, as Moses brought manna in the wilderness, just as he cared for the physical needs of the people completely and, and more than they needed for all of those years, Jesus is faithful to do that. When we pray, give us, Lord, our daily bread, he certainly is the one who gives that to us. Is that all that Jesus does? No. 
What he does here in physical terms is really what he does for all who belong to him spiritually, right? You remember John, he fleshes this out as he recounts this miracle. If you turn over to the the Gospel of John, John chapter 6, beginning in verse 26, you read that that after it's all over, after he has fed them all, the crowds, he's kind of wandered away and the crowds come and find him. And he says, hey, where'd you go? And he says, well, the only reason you're looking for me is because you ate as much as you wanted of, of physical bread. But listen to what he says in verse 26 here. He says, Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in me, whom he has sent. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers, they ate manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Again, God satisfied their physical needs. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, It was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread of heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. And here it is. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Did you notice what he says there? Not just that they would simply be satisfied. Not simply that they would get their fill of bread. But he says they will never hunger again. It is a satisfaction that is complete. It is a satisfaction that will never run out. In Jesus, this bread of life, this this physical miracle, so sufficient in his excess, is a reminder to us. It points us ahead to the true bread of life who is far more sufficient, even to excess for us today. He cares for our needs far more than we can possibly imagine. J.C. Ryle, he says, The heart of man can never be satisfied with the things of this world. It is always empty and hungry and thirsty and dissatisfied till it comes to Jesus. Friends, what seems impossible, new life, new creation. It is the purpose and the power of the bread of life, wholly sufficient, wholly able to sustain and save even the weakest, even the faithless of sinners. And so here we have what is an impossible dinner. Jesus shows us his power, his power over creation, but even more than that, he shows us the power he has to satisfy our deepest longings. He begins to reveal to these disciples once again who he truly is. Now, that leads us to our second point. And it is this important question of verses 18 through 20. We've seen an impossible dinner. Secondly, an important question. Now, it seems as if this miracle it served kind of as the catalyst to bring all the disciples' knowledge, all that they've experienced, all of it to a head. Now, look at what happens there. It happens as Jesus was praying alone. So this is sometime after the disciples were with him. And he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? 
Now, you have to imagine that in the disciples' minds, this is a reasonable question for Jesus to ask, right? He's trying to build a ministry. He's trying to, to really gain some foothold out in the world. And so for him to ask, hey, what are these people? You've been out in the world. You've gone and experienced these things. Well, who do these people say that I am? That seems like a reasonable question. And they're ready with several different possibilities. They say, oh, some say that, that you are John the Baptist. Some say that you are Elijah. Others say that you're just one of the prophets who have returned. Now, we can get into the, the, the kind of the basis for all of these different answers, uh, but we can be sure that they all had some, some support, right? They had something to support uh, being a possibility. But notice, it's not really the opinion of others that, that Jesus is concerned with, is it? He's not really worried to know what everybody out in the world is thinking. Surely, he knew what people were saying. Surely, we've seen him work closely enough with the people that he understood what people thought of him. Jesus is setting up his disciples here for what really is the most important question of all. Knowing Knowing what others have said is well and good. But what truly mattered, what was really the difference between life and death for them and for us today, was their own personal belief. Who do you, he says, again, that you is emphatic, who do you say that I am? And look, I want to be careful here. I said this Wednesday night. My point here is not that Christianity is strictly an individual set of beliefs and we can just believe what we want to about Jesus and that'll be okay. No, the the truth is, is what the apostles believe, what the churches believe, what the creeds and saints of the past have believed, those are important. But the point here is as long as they remain outside of us, as long as they remain the beliefs of someone else, of the church, of the apostles, of our parents, whatever it may be, as long as it remains out of us, then they do us no good. The heart of the question today is, what do I believe about Jesus? What is the truth that he has written on my heart? Please, friends, please, hear hear what I'm saying to you now. Now, it's not enough to to simply have grown up in church, to, to come from a believing family, to have faithful parents. It's not enough to show up here week after week and hear the truth, sitting on the fence, not really knowing yourself, what Jesus says, that there is no participation award in heaven. Just because you were here, that that's not going to get you in. That The question is, and this is not hyperbole, this is the truth, the eternal question of our hearts is what do we believe about Jesus? What do you believe about Jesus? Who do you say he is? Uh, our young people today, who have grown up in the church. You know, we've been blessed this morning to see so many of them begin to kind of put their faith into action, whether it's through the music, whether it's standing up here, giving us a minute for missions, whatever it may be. We've been blessed to see our kids. But y'all, kids, our, our young people, where is your faith grounded today? Is it the faith of your parents? Is it the faith of your grandparents? Is it the faith of your church Or is it your faith? What what do you believe about Jesus? Who is he? That's the critical question. 
That's the question that, that determines life and death. That's the question that will determine your future, not only now, but for all of eternity. Who is this Jesus? Well, that's the question that Christ presents to the apostles. And as we would suspect, Peter is ready with an answer. Uh, he, he almost blurts it out as soon as, as, as he hears it. But it serves as that kind of aha moment. Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ of God. Now, I realize to our ears that sounds sort of anticlimactic, but there's a lot wrapped up in those four little words. You are the Christ of God. You know, the, the Greek Christ is equivalent to the Hebrew Messiah. And once you're there, the whole Old Testament opens up to us, right? Everything that, that the Jewish uh, history had looked forward to this one who would come and deliver this great king, anointed king, sent by God to save his people, the divine savior. He has come. He has come in the person of Jesus. All of their hopes, all of their longings, all that they ha had looked forward to, it is fulfilled in this one who has declared himself the bread of heaven. He was not Elijah. He was not John the Baptist. He was not only a man. But he was the Christ. He was the very Son of God, born to gather and rule over his people. And finally, they got it. <laughs> finally, the light bulb has gone on. This is a joyous moment. This is a time to celebrate. There's one last point that I want you to see. And it is an inconceivable revelation. Again, this is, this is that moment where the, the truth has washed over them. You would think that this would be the moment where Jesus was, would you know, give them the slow clap or say, yes, you got it. Yes, now let's, let's begin to build on this. But notice what Jesus says there in verse 21. Not only does he forbid them from going out and telling anybody the truth, but he says in 22, the Son of Man must suffer many things. And be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed. And on the third day, be raised again. Yes, he was the Messiah they had longed for. But he was not the Messiah that they had expected. Far from overthrowing governments or setting up earthly kingdoms, he had come to establish an eternal kingdom. He had come to establish an everlasting kingdom. And he would do it through suffering. He would do it through, through rejection. He would do it even through death. Now, it's hard for us to imagine what the disciples' feelings in that moment must have been. You know, they've reached the, the high point of their thought. And now Jesus says, yes, that's true, but you also have to believe this. I'm going to die. I'm going to die. Now, we kind of get the reaction from Peter, right? On over in Matthew's gospel, you remember what he says there? Jesus is declaring all of these things, and he pulls Jesus aside, and he says, whoa, 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 whoa. this is never going to happen, and you've got to quit saying these things. You remember what Jesus says? He says, get behind me, Satan. Get behind me. These are the things, these are the truths that they must believe. Yes, Jesus is the Christ he will also die. But I've left one key thing out here all along the way, right? What else will he do? He won't remain dead, will he? He says, not only will, will I die, I will rise. 
he will defeat death. Yes, his death is a necessity. It must happen. But he will rise again. Now look, the rest of Luke's gospel is going to be devoted to, to working that out. It's going to be devoted to showing us. We've seen the person of Christ up until this point. The rest of the gospel is going to be dedicated to showing us the work of Christ, what, what he came to do. It's going to zoom in right there in Jerusalem, going to the cross, being resurrected, all that led up to that. And we're going to see again how the disciples forget it all. They forget everything that Jesus just said, and then in the end, it finally clicks again. They have another one of these aha moments. So yeah, all Jesus said was right. They have that eureka moment one more time. But for now, for now, as we anticipate all that is to come, the question that still stands before us is who do we say that Jesus is? Who do you say, who do I say that Jesus is? Again, friends, it's not an overstatement. It's not hyperbole to say that your answer will determine everything. It will determine the future, both now and eternally. So the question and the answer you must give is, who is Jesus? What do you believe? Do you believe that he is the Christ, the Messiah of God, the Son of Man, Emmanuel, born to set his people free? Do you believe that he is the Lamb of God who through his suffering, through his rejection and death, takes away the sins of his people by taking their place, by standing in their place, by taking the wrath of God that they deserved? Do you believe today that he is the resurrected king who rules and intercedes on behalf of all of us and who will reign as the Lord of hosts, the Lord of lords, the King of kings, for all of eternity, forevermore. Friends, please, don't, don't simply take my word for it. Don't, don't believe it because I say it's true. Do you today believe these things? If not, I encourage you to, to go to the Gospels. Consider who Jesus is. And if you do believe it, I invite you to, to praise along with his people, to extol him, the one who is our great Savior. Let's pray together. Father, as we... Consider these things, uh, these great miracles that Christ performed, uh, this, uh, reveal, that revealed to us so clearly uh, his person and his work, the things that he said. Uh, Father, we, we have wrestled with the, the question that we all must answer. Uh, Lord, we, we can't simply be neutral. We can't simply be on the fence. Jesus said we are either for him or we are against him. Uh, and so, Lord, I pray for those hearts today that are searching, those hearts today that are unsure. Uh, Lord, give us conviction. O only the Holy Spirit can, can build that in us. Only the Holy Spirit can work in us in such a way that, that we believe these things to be true. Uh, and so, Lord, we pray that you might be faithful to do that. Uh, and Lord, for those of us who claim these things as our own, who claim Jesus, who claim all that he has said to be, uh, Lord, help us to, to go out in the world with it. Help us to live by faith, firmly rooted in his person, firmly rooted in his work. And Lord, I pray that others would see that faith in us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.